Good morning, everybody. Man, I wanna I wanna say thank you for the worship from the from the band this morning. Man, that was that was good and needed for me. I appreciate y'all, and thank you for the testimony. And Mike, thank you for being faithful to your uh, to your life group and to your pastor. Um, we needed it this week, and obviously God worked through you. And so I just wanna I wanna echo Lizzie's thanks in that. Um, last week we kicked off Luke chapter nine. Uh, we went through verses one through six. Um, I didn't mention this last week, but I thought it was worth mentioning now. Chapter 9 kind of marks the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. I didn't put a map up there, but just picture this in your mind. Kind of from this point forward, all of his activity is going to happen north and east of that region as he begins to make his way uh, into some other areas and then eventually towards Jerusalem. And we're going to notice in chapter 9 that the pace is going to quicken. Um, Not for us, we're going to slow down, (laughs) actually, but... Prior to chapter 9, typically in a chapter we have three or four different narrative stories that we would work through. In chapter 9, we're going to see that there are 12. Uh, For example, today we're only going to do three verses. So um, that's just how it's going to roll for the next uh, several weeks. Um, Last Sunday, we started with Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples. And he sends them out with his authority and with his power And they're to preach the gospel of Jesus and to perform the same kinds of miracles that Jesus had been performing. They're going to heal the sick. They're going to cast out demons. Jesus gives them the authority to do that. Luke doesn't mention this, but if you look at the gospel of Matthew, during the same time when Jesus sends out the twelve, Jesus goes out and he does the same thing. Look real quick at Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And by the way, there's going to be a ton of scripture today. If you got one of the outlines, the block is huge. So if you got your Bible with you and, and you want to flip along, please do. Some of these I'm going to read off in rapid succession because I just want to, to see the point. But please take that outline home with you and go look at those for yourself in the context around them later this week. But Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and to preach and their hometowns. So it's during this time that so many are going out, these 12, all over the region and preaching the gospel and ministering to people that Luke tells us that the work that Jesus and his disciples are doing, the word of that is spreading. Specifically, Herod begins hearing rumors of what may or may not be happening out in his region. When we last discussed Herod, it was at the beginning of this study, and we talked about how he was the son of Herod the Great. Remember when Jesus was born, it said that the wise men went to Herod, and Herod said, let me know when you find this this, uh, king of the Jews so that I can go and worship him as well. And we talked about how uh, that was just a ploy that Herod wanted to kill Jesus because he didn't want the competition. Well, this is, that's Herod the Great. This Herod that we're talking about today is is his, his son, Okay. Um, He is put in power by Rome as a vassal king. And so a vassal king is simply a ruler underneath another ruler. So Rome has has occupied this area and they've put Herod in place underneath their leadership for him to, to rule over the Jews. So it's in Herod's territory that Jesus and the disciples are doing this work. As the local ruler, Herod is receiving reports of the events that are taking place. And what we're about to see is how those rumors affect Herod and his response to them. So let's read together in verses verses 7 through 9 in Luke chapter 9. So let's look at this together. So Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. Some said that Elijah had had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. So this is a short, very quick little glimpse 
that Luke gives us. And it's interesting that he includes this after the commissioning of the disciples. He includes it because he wants us to see how far-reaching the gospel is when it's preached with the authority and the power given by God. In this passage, we can see both Herod and the people reporting to him are, are fixated on John the Baptist. Luke doesn't tell us in his gospel the full extent of what happens to John the Baptist. He only mentions him in chapter 3, but we, Luke doesn't tell us his final fate until we get to here. Let's look back at chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. We studied this many months ago. It said, but when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod, had, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. So Luke is, in keeping with his orderly storytelling that we talked about at the beginning of this study, he omits the details that Matthew gives us about what happens to John. And this is important for us to understand. If you haven't seen this before, this little three verses in Luke chapter 9 aren't going to make as much sense. So let's flip back to Matthew chapter 14 and we'll read verses 1 through 12. And let's learn about Herod and his relationship with John the Baptist. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, so this is Matthew telling the same story that Luke is telling. It says, For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. And when Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oath and his guest. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. Okay, so we can see clearly in this passage that Herod and his family were not fans of John the, Map, John the Baptist or the message that he was, he was preaching. Everybody clear on that? Everybody agree with that? Herod's not a fan of John. And while Herod regretted beheading John, it was also a comfort knowing that he'd no longer have to deal with Herod or with John calling out all of his improprieties. And after his death, Herod thought that his headaches were behind him in terms of this message. And he'd be free to live as he pleased without anybody publicly calling out his sin like John had been doing. However, now there's reports of a man with a great following are coming into Herod. A group of men were traveling and teaching and performing miracles as they did so. And they're being led by one man who spoke and acted with great power and authority. And it's apparent from Luke's wording that those around Herod who were bringing these reports were all speculating as to who this man might be and who his followers might be. And here we're brought back to the question that we talked so much about in chapter 8. Who is this man? We'll see this question come up as we move through the gospel, but here we see in, in those social and political powers asking this question, who is this man? And why and how they're asking this question is what God is wanting to draw our attention to today. Last week we studied Jesus giving his power and authority to the disciples. In today's passage, we see the beginnings of the result of that mission. This conversation that Luke records is a direct response 
to Jesus and his disciples' work. So point number one for, for today is that when God works through his people, it is noticed. Look at verse 7 again with me. It says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. Okay, so Herod heard about everything that's going on. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Right? If there's a group of people walking around preaching a message and healing people and casting out demons, that's going to garner some attention, correct? Imagine if that happened today in the Middle East with all that's going on, that all of a sudden a man shows up and a group of followers and they are preaching a message of forgiveness and salvation and healing people. Do you think that it would make our news cycles? Yes, it would. It would, in fact, catch some news. If a group of people are in an area working with power and authority that's yet to be experienced, it's going to draw the attention of others. We're going to come back to that statement later in this message. Not only is it going to draw their attention, but they wouldn't know what to do with that information. This is what happens in this story with Herod and all his minions that are giving these reports. Look at the second half of that verse. It says, they were all astounded and perplexed. All right, I got a Greek word for you. Y'all ready for this? I'm not sure if I am. All right, this is the Greek word for perplexed. Diporio, okay? That's how you say it. That's my best, uh, my best guess anyway. It is only used by Luke in this book and his following book of Acts. And I want us to look at these. We looked at the first example in our passage today. I want us to look at four others. In Luke 24, 4, it says, While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them, and dazzling clothes. Acts chapter 2 verse 12. They were all astounded and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Acts chapter 5 verse 24. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what could come of this. Baffled is also that same word. And then finally Acts chapter 10 verse 17. While Peter was deeply perplexed about the vision he had seen might mean Right away, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. Luke is making a clear statement by using this same word every time. I want us to see that when God works through his people, it grabs others' attention and makes them ponder about what is happening. This is intentional. When God works in and through our lives, it's always to teach us something about himself. I love Lizzie's prayer there at the very end, that even when we don't see, when we don't feel God working, we know that he is there. When we're going through struggles in our lives, God is doing something. However, without context of who God is and what he's capable of, people are perplexed and they can't move beyond that. That's what's happening in our story with Herod. Point number two is that there is bafflement because they had no context for who Jesus might be. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. It says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Some said that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had been risen. Obviously, they don't know what's going on. They're giving their best guesses because none of these men were in on what God was doing. They're grasping for any theory that can make sense of what they're hearing. These reports that are coming in are out of this world. And so they're, they're reaching as far back in their minds, as far back in their history as they can to try to make sense of what they're seeing. So they come up with three possibilities. I want us to look at those. 
A, the first one, is that John the Baptist, it was John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. Though this idea was presented, Luke makes it clear that Herod is struggling with this one because he knows that he gave the order to have John killed. Furthermore, his head had been presented to him and Herodias' daughter and then finally Herodias on a platter proving that he was in fact dead. There's no question for Herod, this man is dead, I saw his head on a platter. Me and all of my guests. The only logical explanation is that he had been then raised from the dead. And this theory is interesting because in Jewish teaching, resurrections don't happen until the end of time. This is not something that happens on a regular basis in the Jewish uh, culture. Some scholars say it's doubtful that Herod and his people believed that John was resurrected and more likely that they believed that the spirit of John was on whoever this man was. And the same is true in their second guess. The second one gives us some more insight into what they were even considering with this kind of, of thing happening. And so this is, is B, or number two, is that Elijah, who had returned, was spoken about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. We look at this passage in the very beginning of our study, the second message of this, of this passage. And it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Okay? Now, these are not only the very, some of the very last words that are recorded um, by this prophet before the 400 years of silence, but they also beckon back to Elijah's departure from the earth and the passing on of his power to Elisha. Okay, that story is found in 2 Kings verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 through 15. Let's read that story together because I, to, I want us to understand why they're making these guesses. King, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 7. Fifty men from the sons of prophets came and stood observing them at a distance while the two stood by them by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, which by the way, that's a cloak. In case anybody doesn't know what that is, I had to look it up myself. He rolled it up, struck the water, which parted to the right and the left, and then the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. So Elisha answered, Please, let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Elijah replied, You have asked for something difficult. If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into the heavens in the whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. When he could see him no longer, he took hold of his clothes and tore them in two. He picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle Elijah had dropped and struck the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah, he asked. He struck the water himself, and it parted to the right and to the left, and Elijah crossed over. And when the sons of the prophets from Jericho who were observing saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground in front of him. Okay, really, really interesting story. Definitely worth going back and reading uh, later at a later date. The story made me think, that either Jesus had been given the spirit of John or Elijah in the same way that Elijah had. That's where their minds are. They're thinking back to the story and say, okay, Elijah didn't die. He went up into heaven and then his spirit was down on Elisha and now Elisha has the same power. So in their minds, either John, his spirit after he was dead, went on to this man or 
as Malachi prophesied, maybe it's the spirit of Elijah himself that is now on this man, which brings us to our third guess, is that he's like one of the prophets of old, okay? They were, they're guessing that Jesus is a type. Remember Russ teaching about that years ago, that there are, are types. A type is a person or a thing that share common characteristics. So they are thinking that Jesus that this guy they're hearing about is either John the Baptist resurrected, he's got the spirit of John or Elijah on him, or he is a type uh, in terms of a prophet. This 400 years of silence had clearly ended by this point because of John's ministry, and perhaps Jesus is just another prophet. Maybe he's the next one to come after John. Because God had been silent for so long, and these men had no context for what was happening, they speculated wildly and trying to make sense of it all. And it's obvious that something's happening, right? They're hearing these reports. But they couldn't reconcile what they were hearing with what they knew. And that was not surprising to God. He knew they wouldn't understand. And this is precisely why he sent Jesus out and why he sent the disciples out. I want us to jump back to our passage from last week in Luke chapter 9 when, they send, when, he, when they're sent out. In verse 2, chapter 9, it says, Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then in verse 6, he says, So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Jesus sent them, sent the disciples to tell people about the kingdom of God and to proclaim the good news. And while they're going and doing that, Jesus is also doing it. Their ministry and their message gave the people context for what was happening. They were teaching them about the kingdom of God. And God was working through them to prove that their words were from him. They were the proof of God's presence. I must also point out that Jesus didn't just send them out to preach the gospel. He also gave them the authority and the power to permanently change their physical well-being. Their ministry, which is meeting needs, and we're going to come back to this idea a bunch today. Their ministry, which is meeting needs, and the message, which is the gospel of Jesus, created a ripple effect, and the news spread rapidly. Think of when you throw a stone in a lake, and the ripples move, and they'll, they'll carry all the way across the water. Point number three for today is that God's plan to reveal his son worked. Look at verse nine again. Herod says, I beheaded John. But who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. The fact that Herod was not, had not only heard of what was happening, but also wanted to meet Jesus shows just how large the impact of his ministry was. This is the king, the vassal king, the guy over all of the territory, has lots of things to do, lots of responsibilities. But he hears these stories and he thinks and he says aloud, I want to meet this guy. Church, when God begins to move among a group of believers, the word of his presence is going to travel. It's worth pointing out that Luke doesn't record that 13, or that Herod doesn't say that 13 men were out doing these things. I believe we can safely infer that they knew that Jesus was leading this movement. God didn't send out the disciples so that, so that the region would know who they were. He sent them out to proclaim the goodness of God and the presence of their long-awaited Savior. God revealed himself to the world through their word and action. Jesus did not send the disciples out to preach the gospel only. I made that comment a while ago. He sent them to preach the gospel and to heal and to cast out demons. 
it was, it's common today and in the past for people to spend more time thinking about God's Word than it is for them to do God's Word. Don't misunderstand. Correct thinking about God, that's what we call theology, is vital to our faith. It informs who we are. It informs what we believe. But we cannot only think about and share God's Word. We must also do what Jesus teaches us to do. When Jesus sends the disciples out, They've been following him. They've been listening to his messages. He did not send them out only to preach the message. He sent them out with the authority and the power to do the works that he had been doing. The disciples and John the Baptist clearly understood that action must accompany our faith. I've got a number of scriptures I want us to look at this morning because I want us to understand that you cannot separate the ministry and the message. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and then sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's James, one of Jesus' disciples. Look at how Jesus taught on this concept. Matthew 25, 35 through 36. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then he goes on to say in verse 40 through 43, And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. For they will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not take care of me. John the Baptist was teaching on this concept as well before he baptized Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, verse 11, it says, He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. And finally, John brings this all together in one of his letters. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sister. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. The ministry, meeting needs, 
and the message, the gospel of Jesus, cannot be separated. God does not care only about what we think about him and the aspects of our lives. He cares about how our thoughts translate into action. If our faith does not move us to action, our faith is dead. If we look at the life of Jesus, we see him teaching and meeting the needs of the people that God led him to. And just like the disciples, we will go out into the world and do the same things that Jesus does. That is our goal. We've been talking about that since the beginning of the year. I started a new book this week, and the authors make the following statement in the introduction. I, I just, this it blew my mind. It said it, um, and the, the title of the book is up on the screen. It's also in your outline. At Midtown Church, that's the name of their church, our desire as a church is not just to continue to grow as a sneak preview of heaven and our multi-ethnic diversity, but also to unleash reconciliation compassion and justice as we facilitate individual and systemic transformation in our surrounding multicultural and urban community as it struggles with disparities across race, class, and place. The hope is that our church will be a transformative asset in the Midtown community and beyond. Church, when I read this, I had to stop and just dream for a moment. I had to dream about what this, this call that God has for us could become in our community and in central Louisiana. Church, this is how we see Jesus doing ministry. He goes out into the world following his Father, and he heals, he uplifts, he challenges, he forgives, and he loves all people. No one is excluded from that. This is the ministry and the message of Jesus, and therefore, this will be the ministry and the message of the Gathering Place West. Make no mistake about that. I made this statement earlier in my message. If a group of people are working in an area with a power and authority that is yet to be experienced, it will most certainly draw the attention of others. Church, as we hear God's voice and we follow his lead into ministry in our community, we are going to draw the attention of others. The work of God through Jesus and the disciples drew the attention of the lowest to the highest of people. And the same will be true if we will allow God to work through us. And as a bonus, those workers that we have been praying for, remember we talked about that at the beginning of the year, that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Those workers that God wants to be here, their attention will be drawn by that work of God, by the power of God going through us. It's not by our works, but by the presence of God working in people's lives. In our passage today, Herod asked the question that is now very familiar to, to all of us is, who is this? He asked that because of what God was doing through Jesus and his disciples. Look at the beginning of verse 7 again. It says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. Church, we are going to encounter many who ask the same question. First, they're going to ask it about us. The things God will call us to and equip us to do and the ministry that he has for us will likely not be familiar to the people of Sinlaw. People are going to speculate about our motivation. They're going to speculate about who we are and that is okay. We're going to keep our focus on God and following his lead. But then, and more importantly, 
they will begin to ask this question about Jesus. The work that they see him doing in people's lives will likely not be familiar either. Much work is needed here. And God has asked us as a body of believers, corporately, to join him in what he is doing. He has asked us individually as followers of Jesus to join him in what he is doing. And the power of God has the capacity to change everything. And when people begin to see God's activity, their lives will be transformed in the same way that our lives have been transformed and in even greater ways, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. God has called us to be a body of believers whose focus is not internal. It's not about us. It's about what is God doing out there. This week for me, I shared this morning during testimony, was incredibly difficult. And I will be honest and authentic with you. Part of the reason it was so difficult is because I was focused on how I felt. Let me be clear. It's okay to feel how you feel. But my focus became solely on how I felt in these situations. And that was my downfall. When Mike sent that message to me Thursday morning, it redirected my thoughts. We need the encouragement of one another. We need the encouragement of God because what God is calling us to do is not going to be easy. It is going to be difficult. It is going to push us in places where we are uncomfortable. It is going to cause us to be at the end of our day going, life is so hard, but it's so good. Churches, these disciples were following Jesus. It wasn't all smiles and sunshine. There were days that were difficult. As Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit and they went out to preach the gospel, there were days that were difficult. But because of the power of God, the world has been changed. Church, we have, Tozer talked about this this morning, I won't read you his devotional, but he talked about this morning how the Holy Spirit is forgotten in the American church. And we have traded the power of God for men who speak well. We don't, we don't need that. We need the Spirit of God. Our community needs to know God. And God has called us to do life with them, to step into the hardness of life to step into the pain of life and to bring the hope and the joy that we get to experience as we go through those difficult times. This is our call. Herod heard about all the things that were happening because of the power of God. My prayer is that our community will hear, get to experience the power of God and that others will hear about that, not for the sake of hearing, but for the sake of knowing a Savior. Let's pray. God, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is difficult. And you know that. You've not called us to something easy. But Father, I ask it as we, all of us, individually think about this message, as we think about the ministry that you've called us to, as we think about the message that we are to proclaim, Father, I pray that you will immediately call us to, to, to lean on you, Father, that you would draw us to yourselves, that we would understand fully from the outset that this ministry 
relies solely on you. God, that there is nothing that we have to offer that can change the lives of these people. But Father, you have everything. Father, help us to keep our focus on, on you first and then to see where you are already working so that we can join you. God, it is the desire of my heart and I believe it to be the desire of my church's heart to pursue you for the sake of others. That we would go through difficult things with other people so that they may know the joy and the hope and the peace and the grace that you have provided to all people. Father, I ask that as we, as we ponder these things, Father, that our guiding light would be you and not our own selfish desires. Father, help us to see you in a new light. Give us the passion to pursue you for the sake of others. Give us the, the, the love that you have for all people, Father. Teach us to be like you. Teach us to do the things that you want us to do. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.